one of the realities of being a doctor, you know, if you become one, is that you need to tell people bad news pretty often because people come in to get checked up, you know, okay, is everything working properly? If everything's not working properly, the doctor has to tell people a lot of bad news. No, your knee has a problem. No, your heart has a problem. Um, you know, no, we have to do some further tests to get this checked out because we're a little nervous about that. And so doctors have to get good at telling people bad news. And how the doctor tells us this bad news makes all the difference in how we respond to it. One of the characteristics that people will you know, use to evaluate doctors is, do they have good bedside manner? You know, can they come alongside your bed when you're sick, um, and even if the news is bad, can they uh, make you feel okay about it, like that things are under control? Can they explain medical terms in a way that makes sense to you? Can they um, come and give you bad news um, with gentleness um, and with grace, or do they kind of come in and just, you know, well, here it is, and uh, so what do you want to do? You know, that would not be very good bedside manner. So that's something that doctors need to learn. Um, we don't only want our doctors to be competent at fixing our problems, we want them to be skilled at telling us what our problems are, of giving us the bad news of this is what's um, wrong with you. Um, and so as I was thinking about this, um, I wanted us to explore just for a little bit together, uh, what are, you know, if we think about that doctors are just one person who has to give us bad news, mechanics give us a lot of bad news, um, you know, who, but what's a, what's a bad way to give somebody bad news? Like, what would be a bad way to go about that? And what was right on the board? What's a bad way to give someone bad news? Being blunt. Being, being blunt. Kind of not even thinking about what they're feeling, just like. No empathy. There it is. Yeah. No empathy. The other bad ways to give bad news? So you can lie. <laughs> Don't even give it to them, just lie. Make it sound better than it is. Kind of sugarcoat it. <clears throat> lie. Yeah, that would be a bad way to give so, hey, there's bad news, but I just don't want to tell them. <laughs> <laughs> joke about it? Joke, make a joke about it, yeah. Give someone bad ways to give someone bad news. Maybe um, out of time. Out of time. Oh, like not the right timing uh -huh. or something. Like this is like a. I believe uh, you know my employees trying to get rid of me and you just tell me, hey, you're out. But today, no, I'm, I'm supposed to be out tomorrow. Oh, okay, so bad timing. Maybe they don't give you enough uh -huh. time to like adjust so to it or like. Or yeah. So bad, bad timing, or not enough time, not enough time to react. Being impersonal, like, you know, someone, let's just say a family member passes away and they, you hear it from somebody else or you hear it on, see it on Facebook, but mm -hmm. instead of having somebody personal, you know, your fam family mm -hmm. member coming and telling you, you know. Mm -hmm. I like text you, hey, got cancer. <laughs> wow, uh, <laughs> that would not be, yeah, or yeah, you just hear it through the grapevine or whatever, that's, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's switch to the other side. What, 
are good ways to give someone bad news, which how about never, but it's the reality of life. Sometimes we have to give people you know, bad news. What are good ways to give someone bad news? With a hug? A hug. With a hug. First hand. First hand, opposite of impersonal, yeah. Oh, I was writing with a hug again. <laughs> well, you need the first Maybe. hand to do a hug, yes. <laughs> Anybody get, keep underlining it? <laughs> that first hand, go right to them. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Look, yeah, they're catching on. You could just do the opposite of all these. Or you can come up with new ones, too. So tell the truth. So it's like actually give it to them. Don't leave any parts out that you don't think they can handle or whatever. You give them a solution. This one. With a solution. Pray for them. Pray for them. Yeah, you could pray for them before, during, after. Yeah. Just with tact. With tact Think about what you say. We could say uh Thoughtful. Be thoughtful about it. Kind of be the opposite of blunt, I guess. Just like be whatever. Empathetic. Compassionate. Yeah. Empathetic. Compassionate. Yeah. So we. Uh, that's a good list. So we're going to keep these in mind um, as we go through this passage. Um, and the series we're doing in the book of Genesis is uh, called Beginning the Journey Home. And we're currently in the story of Abraham. Um, and Abraham's uh, the guy with whom God initiates his plan to bring us home. Like we've all wandered from home. Our home is supposed to be with God. We've all wandered from that. And Abraham is the first step that God is taking to, okay, through you, I'm going to bless the whole earth um, by calling them back home, by giving them an avenue to come back home to me. Um, and all the nations of the earth do become blessed through Abraham because from Abraham's family comes Jesus. And now, Jesus, we all, he was all about the good news, uh, the gospel, um, that God is bringing us back home. Our sins can be forgiven. Um, mercy, grace, uh, and love are all available to us. But Jesus also gave a lot of bad news during the course of his ministry. And I'm guessing that if I go into your cupboards, I'm not going to find a coffee mug with a verse from the story of Sodom and Gomorrah on it. And, or I'm guessing you don't have wall art in your house that, you know, your favorite verse from the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, boom, my little canvas print I ordered and put it up on my wall. I'm guessing that this isn't, this isn't what I'm going to find in your house. And, uh, but in, even more so, when people think about or want to criticize the Old Testament, um, this is one of the stories that people go to, like, because um, people often pit you know, the God of the Old Testament with Jesus, the God of the Old Testament is kind of grumpy and angry and is always throwing fire and brimstone uh, down on people. And look, here's the proof. Look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Look, look what he does with them. And then another classic story is people go to the flood and they look, look how you know, mean God is, just wiping people out back in Genesis um, 6 to 9 when we covered that passage in this. And so when people want to criticize uh, the Old Testament or criticize God, um, 
the flood or Sodom and Gomorrah is where they go. And in many ways, Sodom and Gomorrah is kind of like a mini version of the flood because God says, hey, um, there's this wickedness, there's this sin, I'm going to take care of this. Um, and he, he does that in both stories. And then in, he also only saves one family escapes from both of them um, because of God's grace. God gives Noah and his family uh, a rescue, a way out. And then God gives Lot and his family a rescue and a way out. And both these stories are used to show people how, you know, just how bad God in the Old Testament is. But then people say, Jesus, on the other hand, well, he's full of love and kindness and gentleness and mercy. Um, and so there's this comparison. But what may surprise us or surprise other people is that Jesus actually brings up the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and brings up the story of the flood several times in his teaching ministry. And he uses it to, to tell people, hey, God's judgment is really serious. And if you're going to reject me, um, as your savior, then you're not going to be saved from this. Like, look at the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Look what happened to them. Look at the people uh, in Noah's time during the flood. They're just going about their business, ignoring the reality of God, ignoring the reality of their sin and the issues they have in their life. And then look what happened. All of a sudden, it's all over. And so Jesus used this, used these two stories to show people the serious of, seriousness of God's judgment and also a warning of this is what is going to happen if you reject me as your savior. But this story read today is not all about judgment and God's justice. This story is also about salvation and God's mercy. And, and we need both. We need both God's judgment and God's mercy. Um, because without God's judgment, unless we understand this is what's due to us for rebelling against him, for disobeying him, um, for ignoring him, unless we understand that's what's owed to us, um, that God should be giving us, we'll never understand um, the sweetness and the goodness of his mercy because we'll think, I'm just kind of entitled to salvation. I'm entitled to his love. I'm entitled to him doing these things for me. And so unless we have both, we won't uh, really understand um, salvation because um, we only need a solution when there's a problem, right? We only need salvation um, when there's something to be rescued from. And so if we're going to ignore God's justice, well, what's the point of mercy? Mercy's not saving us from anything if there's no justice. And so the question we're going to answer in this passage, we're going to go through it, but the big question we're going to answer is, how do we relate to a God of justice and mercy? How do we relate to a God of justice and mercy? How do we relate to a God of justice and mercy? And the story breaks down into two parts, these visitors from heaven come along, and first they interact with Abraham, and first they interact with Lot. And so, let's look at Abraham and the heavenly visitors. Um, so Genesis 18 and 19 cover less than 24 hours, and Genesis 18 starts in the heat of midday with Abraham hanging out in his tent, you know, under the shade. All of a sudden he sees these three guys coming up, um, and classic Middle Eastern hospitality is, you are fresh visitors who are stopping by, who are going by on a journey. And so he says, oh, please sit under my shady tree. Um, I'm going to get you some bread, and I'm going to wash your feet. And he says, and they're like, okay, go, go ahead and do it. And then Abraham proceeds to create this feast. He's like, let me just give you a little bread. And then he you know, slaughters a, a ram, and he makes this whole, big, this whole big feast for them. And as they eat, it soon becomes clear that this visit is from God himself. Because God, again, just like he did in the previous chapter, tells him, this time next year, Sarah is going to be pregnant. And uh, listening in the tent behind Abraham, Sarah laughs to herself, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, am I going to be pregnant? Because she's 90 years old. Um, she's way past menopause. It says, it says the way of women is stopped with her. 
Um, and she's like, and my husband is 99 years old. Like, we're both worn out. Really, are we going to get pregnant? And then the Lord asked this question we really focused on last week. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer he expects is, no, nothing is too hard for the Lord. And then from here, the conversation shifts. The three visitors depart from Abraham, um, and they're heading towards Sodom. And back in chapters 13 and 14, we learned about the character of Sodom. And we are told they're wicked people. Um, they're great sinners against the Lord. Um, and Lot, Abraham's nephew, went and lived close to Sodom. That's how we were introduced to it. And we learned that their king is kind of this surly, ungrateful guy. And now as the Lord and his two angels leave Abraham to go towards Sodom, he, God pauses and he wonders to himself, well, should I inform Abraham of my plans? Kind of, you know, you know, about to leave, and he's like, well, should I tell Abraham about this? And then verses 17 through 19 say this, chapter 18. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So God doesn't need to reveal his plan to Abraham. Um, he, but he's complimented contemplating, should I reveal this plan to him? And why is he thinking about this? Why does he ask that question? Well, he said it's because, why should I invite, tell Abraham about my plans and purposes? Well, because Abraham's part of my plans and purposes. I'm going to use him and his family to bring blessing to the rest of the world, to bring people home from their wandering. And God says, I've chosen Abraham so his family may keep my ways by doing justice and righteousness. And God's like, I have this special relationship with Abraham because of this. He's like, I'm going to reveal my plans and purposes to him. And it's no different um, for each of us who trust in Christ that now we are God's people. We're part of Abraham's family by faith. And we have the scriptures and we have the Holy Spirit. And God reveals his plans and purposes to us because we're part of those plans and purposes. And he has a special relationship with us. And we're privy to special knowledge. It's a, it's a privilege and um, it's not something God has to do with us. But then verse 20 says this. Then the Lord said, because of the outcry, so here, this is him revealing the plans. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I'll go down to see whether they've done all together according to the outcry that's come to me. And if not, I will know. God's investigating the situation to see, is it true um, what the reports I'm getting about Sodom and Gomorrah is? And then what happens next is surprising. The two angels um, that came with God, they head down to Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and then the Lord remains by Abraham. And Abraham, it seems like he's kind of standing in distance. And then it says he comes up near. And then he asks this question in verse 23. He says, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abram's concern is that, okay, this is a wicked city, but what if there's some righteous people in the city? Like, you're going to destroy this whole thing, but what if, okay, maybe in general or the majority of the people are not good and they deserve this kind of judgment, but what if there's some that, that don't? Will you just wipe all of them out together at the same time? 
And then he keeps the conversation, he's keeping it general, like, you know, righteous and wicked, but surely he must be thinking, my nephew Lot moved there. You know, like, will God, if Lot's righteous, and I hope he is because he grew up with me and I was basically raising him, um, will God wipe out this whole thing and Lot's going to go down with him? And then in verse 25, he asked the, the powerful question that we should all memorize. We should all memorize the question we heard in the first 15 verses. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And, you know, whenever we're stressed or whenever we're not bringing things to him, is anything too hard for the Lord? And then the question we get in verse 25 here is, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the assumed answer is, well, yes, the judge of all the earth will always do what is just. God is perfect and good and just, so he's always going to do what is just. And in the previous conversation, the question was, is anything too hard? And here, he has this question that we can take with us. And anytime we're wondering, like, you know, is this fair? You know, is God going to take care of this situation? We can know the judge of all the earth will always do what is just. And God responds in verse 26. He says, well, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. So if there's 50 there, everyone gets, gets spared from this um, destruction God is going to bring. And then in humility and submission, Abram starts asking God uh, about lowering the number. Well, what if it's 45? And then God's like, sure. What if it's 40? Sure. You know, and then he just keeps going. What if it's uh, 30? And what if it's 20? And finally, from 20 to 10, what if you find 10 in the city? And he, each time he kind of like apologizes. He's like, I'm kind of bothering you. And he's, you know, he's kind of like humble. He's like, is this really what I can, should be talking to God about? Like, is this right for me to be doing? Um, but why, does, you know, why is God letting Abram kind of like talk this through with him? And it seems like he's letting him explore, you know, what is, what is the, a God um, of justice and righteousness like? God said, Abram's family is to keep the ways of the Lord, doing righteousness and justice. And the only way they'll know how to keep the ways of the Lord is if Abram knows how is God going to deal with this city, with this mixture of righteous and wicked people. He's learning how does God's righteousness and justice work. And the stamp, question stamped over all this is, well, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the answer is, yes, God always does what is just for everyone, every single time. And the Bible clearly teaches that our eternal destiny uh, is determined by our response to Jesus. And trust in Jesus leads to eternal life. Um, rejecting Jesus leads to eternal death. And that's the clear teaching of Scripture. And anyone who teaches otherwise is veering from the truth. But this truth brings up questions for us. Like, well, what about those who've never heard of Jesus? What's going to happen to those people? And this is perhaps one of the questions I've heard people ask the most when it comes to whether they're going to accept or reject um, Christianity as a religion. Well, what about, well, if, you know, if so much hinges on people knowing Jesus and responding to him, well, what about all those people who could never hear about him? What's going to happen to those people? How is that fair um, that they should suffer this sort of punishment? And it's important to remember that nobody is condemned or punished for not believing in Jesus. Believing in Jesus is the way out of the punishment we deserve. The punishment we should get is because of how we act, our, our sin and our rebellion and our selfishness. God says clearly, here's what I want you to do. Love me with your whole heart, with everything you have, and love other people like you love yourself. Um, but we often do the exact opposite. Often we love ourselves at the expense 
of other people. We let other people be hurt because we're trying to do so much for ourselves. And so we don't follow, you know, even if you say like, okay, here's just, just these two commands. That's all you got to do, love me and love other people. It's like, man, how much do we struggle with that? And it's on that basis that God um, judges people and condemns them. Like, man, you didn't do this hardly at all in your life or half your life or whatever it is, um, you know, if you break the law, it's not like, but look at all the other ones I've kept. If I'm driving 75 miles per hour, but I have my seatbelt on, so don't I get off the hook for that? Well, no, you broke the law, so now there's a consequence to that. And so it's important to remember that um, God, uh, that we're judged not because we don't believe in Jesus, but we're judged for our sin and our selfishness and our, and our pride. Um, and believing in Jesus is the way out of that. God didn't have to offer that to us, but he did. But God would still be totally just fair um, and good if he didn't offer anyone salvation. That's what grace means. Grace means getting something you don't deserve. So God offering forgiveness and salvation is what we don't deserve. What we deserve is the consequence for our sin. And so God would be totally just and fair. Um, the judge of all the earth would have done what is just, even if he didn't offer salvation. But even if we still wonder, well, how is it fair? I was born in this country that is just totally, has so many options and for me to hear about Jesus. But what about the person who's born, you know, hundreds of miles away from the nearest church in some, you know, remote village in Africa, and they've never even heard the name Jesus, they've never heard the name of Christianity, they don't know any of that. How, you know, how is it fair, those two situations? Um, and why should I get so many opportunities? And we can still rest assured the judge of all the earth is going to do what is just for those situations. Even if we don't have the answers, you know, it's fine to say, I, I honestly don't know. Here's what I know about God. I know he's just. I know he's always going to do what's just and right and fair and good. And he's going to deal with those people in a just way, in a fair way. And I'm going to let him work out you know, what's fair, even when we're confused. But besides people who never hear about Jesus, we can also trust God in cases where um, that are that are harder. Because there's people who have never heard, but there's then there's people who hear, um, but are incapable of understanding. And so we may ask, well, what about like little kids? What about like one-year-olds who die, and they could never understand anything about Jesus? Or what about somebody um, who is cognitively um, impaired, is un is unable to understand and, and grasp and process knowledge and in, in, a, in a way that other people can, what about them? What, what, they've heard a bunch of times, but they just, you know, they can't take it in and understand it. And our answer should never be dismissive or cold, but always filled with love, compassion. I mean, some of these things, you're not necessarily giving people bad news, but like, here's the things we, we want. Um, we should always have compassion, empathy, and showing love for people, um, and weeping with people who've lost somebody. And you may know someone who's lost a child, or, or perhaps you've experienced that terrible loss for yourself. And the, the Bible doesn't speak directly or clearly to what happens in that situation. But we can know this. The judge of all the earth will always do what is just. We can trust God to do what is just and good and right and fair. In those cases that we can't even wrap our minds around, we can't figure out, we can say, you know, God... This is in your hands. Um, I don't really get it. You know, so if you're a person who's like, yeah, I've, I've experienced that sort of loss, or I know someone um, who's cognitively impaired, it's like we can, you can trust that God will always do what is just. 
Um, and if you're talking to somebody who's asking those sorts of questions, you can just say, I don't, you know, honest, um, honest humility um, is always much better um, than false hope. And so just give honest humility. You know, I don't know, but I know that God is good. And I know he's just, and I know he's fair, and I know he's done the right thing in those cases. And on the other side, we may look at evil in the world and, and see, like, well, bad things have been done to me, and bad things have been said to me, and I know lots of other people, and bad things have been done to them, and bad things have been said to them. And is anything ever going to be done about that? How is it fair that bad people keep doing bad things and are never held to account for it? And some of us, some of us have had those horrible experiences, things done to us. And in those situations, even if our human justice fails, human justice system fails to bring people to account, we can still say, well, I know that God, the judge of all the earth, will always do what is just. So even if something doesn't get righted um, in our time on this earth, um, we know that God is going to set all things right. And so the Bible says all over the place, do not seek revenge. Leave justice in the hands of God. Um, it's not our call to seek revenge and to make people pay for the wrong they've done. Of course, we have governments, and God you know, is, is behind governments being set up. We're supposed to pray for our leaders that they would execute it. Um, but, you know, in our personal lives, it's like, well, I can leave it in God's hands. He's going to right every wrong. And from Abram's interaction with the heavenly visitors, we move on to Lot. The angels met Abraham in the heat of the day, but when they arrive at Sodom in the evening, they arrive at Sodom in the evening after the heat of the day with Abraham. And Lot's sitting in the city gate upon seeing him. He's like, oh, hi. He greets them, and he says, oh, you should stay. It's, it's nighttime. You should stay at my house tonight. And they're like, no, um, we're going to stay in the square. And they're... You know, they're coming to investigate things. You know, are these citizens as bad as they say they are? So they're not going to you know, go stay with one of those citizens. They're like, no, we're coming to investigate. But Lot's like, no, no, you need to do this. You, gotta, you need to stay with me. And so they're like, okay, we will. And inside his house, Lot prepares this feast like Abraham did. Invites the visitors in, prepares this feast. But when the men of the city, well, it says everybody in the city, when they hear that Lot has these visitors, they come banging at the door and they're like, bring those guys out because we want to know them. And... That phrase is a euphemism in the Bible um, for knowing someone sexually. Um, so like, bring them on out, we want to know them. And so like, we see the wickedness and the evil of Sodom uh, in full display. Like These people are supposed to be visitors, they're supposed to be protecting them and caring for them. But instead they're like, you know what, bring them out, we're all just going to basically gang rape them. And it's like, what is going on here? Like this city, like we, all, we see like this is the reason um, that God is coming to to judge these people. And Lot goes outside, he tries to convince them otherwise. He's like, no, let me, let me give you my virgin daughters as a replacement. Wouldn't recommend that strategy because uh, he's, he's so concerned about caring for and protecting his visitors, which is his responsibility, that he forgets he has a responsibility to care for and protect his daughters. So he's like, okay, I'm going to save them. You know, it's kind of like his, his uh, ends justify the means. Okay, I'm going to protect my visitors. And so I'm gonna, you know, I can do it this way. And he's, you can see how Lot's kind of been twisted by living in this city. Um, he's, his view of the world and how he's acting has um, gotten warped. And then the, the men are like, no, we're not accepting that. Like, you're going to judge us. So then the angels grab him, pull him inside. They blind the guys outside. And then they're like, okay, you need to get out of here. We're going to judge this place. It's, you know, there's grave wickedness here. And so um, he's like, go get all your family. Tell them that they need to get out. And so 
he goes and tells his sons-in-law. They think he's joking. And then morning comes. It's been the whole night. And the angel's like, what are you doing? You're still here. And they're like, oh, you've got to get out of this place. You know, Lot's just kind of lingering along. And even after they say that, then Lot's still lingering. And they're like, you need to go. It's like he doesn't he take the judgment seriously. And he's like, okay, sh- you know, sure. You guys, like, that's great. And he's just kind of like not really fully grasping the situation. But uh, so finally they're like, they just grab him. They're like, we got to... We're taking you out of here. Um, that's the only way they could get him out. And then he's like, oh, please, like, we're taking you to the hills. And then he says this um, in verse uh, 18. He says, uh, oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. You've shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And while Abraham pleaded for the salvation of others. Lot pleads for his own salvation, but it's not, you know, please save me from this disaster. It's, oh, oh, please let me be saved by letting me live in this city because I still want to stay. He went to the Jordan Valley, if you remember, after uh, he, they came back from Egypt, and Lot learned, I need to trust in worldly security if I'm going to be okay. And so he chose Jordan Valley, even though it had you know, cities like Sodom and cities like Gomorrah. Now he's like, no, I need to stay here. Otherwise, you know, I'm not going to live. Like, I need to trust in this worldly security. And so now, even as one of the valleys, you know, one of the cities in this valley that he lives in is being destroyed, he's still concerned with, I need to stay here and be part of this place. And God, God grants his request and lets him go stay in the city of Zoar. Um, and then at daybreak, the city of Sodom, once he arrives there, it gets destroyed. Um, and Lot's wife, they said, do not look back. Um, but she you know, turns and hesitates, and she gets burned up by um, the sulfur and fire coming down. Um, she didn't obey the rescue plan. Um, and then Abram is watching from afar um, and seeing, um, okay, God found there weren't, you know, he said if there's at least ten righteous, I'd spare the city. It's burning up, and so I must not, must not have found ten righteous and the last memory we're left with Lot, about Lot, the last time he's, you know, it's kind of like he goes out in infamy. Um, he leaves Zoar because that's not working out for him. He goes and lives in a cave, and his daughters get him drunk and sleep with him because they're like, well, we probably aren't going to get husbands anytime soon to have kids, so let's have a husband with our, or a kid with our dad. Um, and they, like their father, Lot's daughters are trying to prevent a bad thing from happening. They don't want to be childless, but they go about it with... Um, ways that show that, man, their character has really been compromised. Like, that isn't the way to go about this. You know, wouldn't, wouldn't there be a better plan to come up with? And then we're told their, their kids become the fathers of the Moabites and the Ammonites who give Abram's family, the nation of Israel, um, lots of problems later on. But as we read this, our question we're asking, how do we relate to a God of justice and mercy? And the good news we need to know is that God is both just and God is Merciful. He's both. Both are good news. That's what we talked about when we covered the flood. Both of these things are good news. The good news is that God never lets sin, He never lets evil, He never lets wickedness go unaccounted for. Like He's going to call, call all of it to account. You can be sure that God will never be a corrupt judge. He can never get paid off. He's never going to overlook something because He has some sort of you know, special deal with somebody. He's never going to be corrupted. God's always going to do um, what is just and right. All lawbreakers will be held to account, and God will always render a completely just verdict. And so how do we relate to a God of justice and mercy? Our big question. Well, like Abraham, 
We need to trust that he'll do what is just. How do we relate to a God of justice and mercy? Like Abraham, we need to trust he will do what is just. But the bad news is that we're all lawbreakers. So if God's a just just judge, we're all going to be held to account and the verdict will always be guilty. But then the good news, God's justice is good news because we don't want to corrupt judge, but God's mercy is good news because uh, he's paid the penalty for our law breaking so that we can be forgiven. And so like Lot, our question is, how do we relate to a God of justice and mercy? Like Lot, we need God's kindness, grace, and mercy. Like Lot, we need God's kindness, grace, and mercy. Because we need to love that God is just. Like That should be something that we love about God. Like we can always trust him to be fair. Always trust him to do what is right. We can always count on him. He's never going to wrong us. But then that leads us to say, well, geez, if that's the case, I've broken his laws a lot. I've disobeyed him a lot. I've ignored him a lot. I've not loved him a lot. I've not loved other people a lot. That's bad news for me because if he's always going to do what's just, that means in his law court, I'm going to be condemned. And we're all like Lot. And he doesn't deserve it. And neither do we to receive his mercy, to receive salvation. Um, because you can see Lot, he like doesn't want to leave. He's like, this place, if you stay here, it's going to kill you. And he's like still holding on to it. And he only comes out of it when the angels grab him and rip him out of it. And the Bible makes it pretty clear we're all dead in our sins. And we'll never leave it unless God comes into our life and comes into our house and grabs us by the shirt and pulls us out of it so we'll be rescued. Because we all have these hard, dead hearts that are not willing to respond to God and then God reaches into our lives and makes us alive and when we're dead in our sins he raises us with Jesus to make us alive again so we can believe him and love him and something we have a hard time seeing uh, is at the same time is that God is both just and merciful we have a hard time seeing God as both and we probably you know at various times in our life like we probably hit one or the other. Maybe some of us are always seeing God as just. And so we all, what we see is this, you know, kind of like this drill sergeant of like, here's the standards, you're not measuring up, and you know, that's, God is just just. And some of us see God as only merciful, and he's sort of like this mushy grandpa who's always like, ah, you know, that's fine, whatever you do, and never like, you know, does anything with, you know, I, I don't know what your grandpas are like. I don't know if mine was really like that. But, you know, that's, the, that's kind of the image. Like, mushy grandpa up in the sky. He never really calls anybody to account. You know, kids can just do whatever they want. And it's like we maybe relate to God as one or the other. And if we, we have a hard time seeing somebody's both. Because think about parenting. There's oftentimes one parent, uh, or maybe it's just like a stereotype. Oftentimes one parent is kind of like, I'm the rule enforcer. Like, I make sure the rules are being followed. Shoes are picked up, beds are made, um, homework's done, and like they're the one that really enforces the rules. We have high standards. And then you have another parent who's all about mercy. They're letting the kids get off the hook all the time, saying, like, better not do that, better not do that, better not do that, or this is going to happen, and then you know, punishment never comes. And so we often see, you know, maybe our parents were, there was like good cop, bad cop, or something like that. Um, or we have experiences of people who just like, go between them, almost like they have split personalities. Like, for a long time, they're just going to be harsh and angry and, like, these all things need to get done and, like, not find the rules. And then uh, next week, you know, like, in a better mood, so like, oh, you know, whatever, it's okay. And then you're, like, 
and you're just having this weird toss to and fro thing where you're like, what is going on? And we have a hard time being both just and merciful at the same time. And we've rarely seen someone who can do it at the same time. And for me, um, I always am leaning towards you know, justice. Like, here's the standards, and people need to follow the standards. We've we got to do that. And so I'm always saying, like, no, how do I turn and worship a God who's both um, so that I can be like him, be like his character, and be someone who's representing him? Because we need both of them. All mercy and no justice doesn't exist because without justice, there's no need for mercy. And boundaries and standards and limits and direction are good and healthy and necessary for us. And so we need justice. We need rules. We need limits on us. And all justice and no mercy means that the relationship is in jeopardy every time we make a mistake or every time we sin. And so we need mercy along with justice. If there's no mercy, forgiveness is never offered when we transgress a rule or a boundary. And Jesus embodied both. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of God's justice and mercy. He like puts those with flesh on. And, when, and we think grace and mercy means um, God kind of lowers the standards. Like, you know, Jesus came and he kind of lowered the standards. Like, if somebody's going to give you grace and mercy, they're lowering the standards. But if anything, Jesus made this, the highness of the standards more explicit. He made it crystal clear. Like, you know, read Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and it becomes clear whoa, Jesus is not lowering the standards, and he's making it clear just how high the standards are for people. And he totally followed God's standards, and he taught others, if you're teaching people to transgress these and just ignore them, um, you might as well have a big stone tied around you and thrown in a pond. Like, he was pretty serious about, this is God's justice expressed in his law. These are the standards. But he also taught that as sinners prone to wander from God, we're totally dependent on God's mercy, if we have any hope of a relationship with God, if we have any hope of being saved, if we have any hope of having a right relationship with God, it's going to be on His mercy. We need to abandon all of our own efforts of making ourselves right and instead throw ourselves on His grace and His mercy and His kindness. Jesus did both things. And at the cross, we see the, the clearest and most intense combination of God's justice and God's mercy because God is so full of justice that sin will not go unpunished. But God is so full of mercy that he takes the punishment upon himself. And that's what happens at the cross. Sin will not go unpunished. I'm so full of mercy that I'm going to take the punishment upon myself. And anybody who will accept me as their Savior will have all their sin paid for. And at the cross, we see both of them totally combined. And at Jesus' death on the cross, he burned in the fire of Sodom and Gomorrah in our place. And at Jesus' death on the cross, he was drowned in the flood in our place. At the cross, we see the seriousness of God's justice and also the sweetness of God's mercy. And the more that we're able to come to grips with the fact that we should, have suff- we should be in Sodom and Gomorrah, we should suffer the same fate, um, and if we don't trust in Jesus, you know, that's our fate. The more we come to grips and acknowledge that and are willing to say, yeah, God is just and I've totally broken his law, the more we are able to acknowledge that, the more we'll be able to enjoy the mercy and the grace and the kindness he shows to us. Because if we don't acknowledge the first, we'll just think, you know, I'm, I'm kind of entitled to all those other things. Um, and, you know, he just should give those things to me. And Jesus embodied God's justice and mercy. And now he sends us as, an, as his ambassadors to do the same. And as, in living as family, we show the world a, a picture of what it looks like to have both of those things exist in a community. And like I said, I struggle 
of veering to the one, like justice, standards, yeah, we all got to live by these, and if you don't, you're in trouble. And then some of us probably veer over to the, like, oh, you know, you're sinning and, like, hurting me and other people, hey, you know, it's okay, and, like, never talk about um, that with somebody. I could kind of caricature myself and the other, you know, those are kind of, like, you know, big, exaggerated views of both those, of both those things. Um, but we need to be a community that you know, is holding to one another to a high standard and saying we want to live worthy of the Lord Jesus who has rescued us and said, I want you to live a new life. And we can call each other to that and at the same time remaining committed to one another and loving one another when the other person fails at that and not saying, like, if you don't live worthy of Jesus, you know, we're done with you and maybe you should find a different place to go. Um, no, it's, you know, we're all committed to each other and even when we hurt each other or sin against each other, as we're all trying to live out this life Jesus called us to, we're showing his mercy and kindness to each other by not giving up when another person fails us or hurts us. And uh, you know, if you think about what are some of the, just real quickly, what are some of the words, if you took a survey of people who are like, I don't like the church, what are some of the words that they would use to describe church people? Hypocrite. Hypocrite. Any others? Or, I feel like they say, I've been hurt by the church. Like, I've been hurt? Phrase, like, I've been hurt. Been hurt. By the mm-hmm. Hurt, hypocrite. Boring. Boring. Boring, oh. boring or stuffy. Boring. Yeah. yeah, just take all the fun away, yeah, kind of thing. <laughs> fun suckers. Yeah, yeah. And another one is judgmental. Hypocrite, judgmental, boring, you know, been hurt by you. And it's like, well... Now, the judgmental and hypocritical, how would it transform people um, to see a community that um, isn't being judgmental towards one, each other, one another, aren't being hypocrites saying, like, you always do this, and then turning the other way and being like, well, they don't keep, you know, I don't keep the rules either, but yet I'm judging everybody else for it. A community that is embodying Jesus' love and mercy and kindness while also holding each other to high standards and saying, like, let's live for, for our God. Let's give our lives over, over to Him. Um, and we... As we love other people, you know, it's easy to look at people and be and look at them and say, "Well, I'm a judge." You know, if we're judgmental hypocrites and we go and love people who think of us that way, we love them as servants, showing them this is God's mercy in action, um, loving you in your situation. You know, God came into my life. You know, like Lot comes into his house, takes them out of there, and rescues them. What would it look like if we're loving people? Um, who are just down and out and are needing to be loved and, and, and rescued and showing them um, that, no, we're not judgmental hypocrites. We know we need this as much as you do. And then Jesus also calls us to go out as messengers and to tell people, this is the good news. There is salvation available. Um, but Jesus, you know, he was sometimes telling people bad news. And the people he told bad news to um, were people who were proud and thought they had it all together um, or people who rejected him. And he, was, he had the hardest words those types of people but then people that were like broken um, and feeling poor in spirit or poor literally or who are um, humble and repentant and downcast he gives good news to those people he gives good news to people who are beaten up and weary to people looking for a savior Jesus gives good news and so how do we relate to a God of justice and mercy and lastly um, like Abraham we should desire and pray for the salvation of others how do we relate to a God of justice and mercy? Like Abraham, we should desire and pray for the salvation of others. In 
as we leave and are about to take the Lord's Supper, we go out with this message of, wow, we want, we desire, and we pray for people to be saved. And we go out leaving here and taking the Lord's Supper knowing, you know, I deserve to be like Sodom. That should be my fate. Um, but if you trust in Jesus, God has rescued you. He came to your house, into your life, and took you out um, so that you could be free of that. And so we go out with that news. You know, we don't go out with judgment of saying, like, guess what, you're going to be judged. It's like, you know, Paul says he weeps for his fellow Jews in the New Testament. He's like, I'm weeping for them that they would accept Jesus. And so that's the attitude we have. We don't go out saying, like, you know, all these people, you know, think about this. We have good news and we have some bad news. And this is how we should be telling people, if we're ever telling people about judgment, you know, we need to tell people the truth if they're just rejecting Jesus and not caring, but we do it with empathy and compassion and praying for them with tact, um, with a hug, maybe it's appropriate. Um, and we don't, we don't hold back. Let's pray. Father, thanks for uh, this passage and thanks for how it challenges us to see you as a God of justice and mercy. Would you help us to worship you and praise you as both those things? And would you help us live as people who? are embodying your justice and mercy in our lives to one another and to people who don't yet know you. As we come to the Lord's Supper, would you help us celebrate um, and be thankful for what you did on the cross for us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.